welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Secret of the Samurai Sword by Phyllis A. Whitney. Volume 5, Chapter 11, Sword of a Samurai. By the time the day of the trip to the studio rolled around, Celia's Japanese doll was beginning to take shape, but the mysteries had moved no nearer solution than before. Gran was especially delighted about this studio trip. Some Japanese movies, she told Stephen and Celia, were very fine and had won acclaim all over the world, though most Japanese liked American movies better. On the other hand, the B pictures were sometimes quite funny, and if that was what they were filming during this visit, it was possible to see some real action. Anyway, she hoped to get some general material for her book. Celia, too, looked forward to the trip. The flight bag had at length arrived from Tokyo with everything intact, and now that Stephen had his precious light meter back, he was in a much better humor. His annoyance with his sister had died away, and Celia hoped nothing would happen to start it up again. Since Hiro was to be an extra in the movie, he went ahead to the studio early that morning, and his friend Michio went with him. But he had left passes for the others supplied by his uncle, and Sumiko turned up happily on their doorstep, just as Grand Stephen and Celia were putting their shoes on. They caught a cruising taxi for the trip across Tokyo. The morning was hot and muggy, with the sun shining through a thin haze. Gran and Sumiko talked for most of the trip across town, while Stephen watched the passing scene and Celia dreamed and thought her own thoughts. Once or twice she felt in her pocket to make sure the envelope with the dragon drawings was safely there. Last week, after Stephen had said that the cardboard key might represent the one to the bomb shelter, Celia had gone outside when no one was watching and examined the lock. It did indeed look as though it might be the right size and shape for that key, but she was no wiser than before as to why anybody should have cut out a picture of the key. On the way back to the house, she asked Tani where the key to the shelter was kept, but neither she nor Setsuku knew. The American families had never opened the shelter, and no one had bothered about the key for a long, long time. Certainly it wasn't around the house with any of the other keys. Yet Celia's feeling that the key might lead to something more than just a door increased in spite of discouragement. When the driver pulled up in front of a wide gate, they were all glad to get out and stretch their legs. Grand showed their passes, and they walked through the gate into the sprawling grounds of the studio. Apparently they could wander around as they liked, and by following their noses would probably come across something interesting. Inside it was dusty, and there were small stones that got into their shoes. Stephen investigated a few large shed-like buildings as they went by, but reported that while there seemed to be sets inside, everything was dark and deserted. He had his camera along, of course, and was hoping to get some good shots of movie-making. A growing clamor arose behind them as they walked along, and they turned to see a tour group of some fifty or more Japanese was streaming through the entrance gate. A neat, efficient-looking Japanese girl in a blue uniform hurried them along at a good rate and seemed to know just where she was going. "'Let's follow them,' Grand said. "'Tours are a big thing in Japan.' Sometimes, when I visit a temple or some place like this, I think half the country must be on tour. 
Their own group kept a discreet distance from the actual tour, but followed it as it twisted like a long, colorful snake among the sheds and replicas of scenes. Here and there, Celia saw architecture that looked familiar and realized that replicas had been built of a number of famous Kyoto buildings. The entire place seemed deserted, as if all the inhabitants of this make-believe world were off on holiday. Stephen had Graham and Sumiko and Celia pose for a picture in a wooden gateway that was real only from one side, and then they wandered on, still following the tour. Rounding the corner of a tumble-down shed, they ran without warning into a scene of action. A mob of a hundred or more extras, men and women dressed as Japanese peasants from a bygone day, were gathered in a large open area. Some of them wore straw hats fastened to their chins. Some wore varieties of coolie coats, patched trousers or kimonos tied high above their bare legs. Some of the women had material of a dark color over their heads in the manner of a hood, while some of the men had sweatbands of cloth bound around their foreheads. Streaks of brownish makeup marked their faces of many of the actors, and most of the mob carried staves or sticks or even long knives. Almost anything seemed to go in the way of costume and equipment. The tour guide led her obedient sheep to the far side of the crowd, where they wouldn't get in the way of the camera, but Gran said she thought their own small group would be all right here with this small shed to hide them. The only trouble was that the principal actors and what they were doing were completely out of sight in the direction of a high gate toward which the large peasant group faced. The actors seemed to be up on a platform before the gate, and once in a while you can see the top of a head and hear their distant voices, but not much else. Sudden words over a loudspeaker alerted the extras. They all leapt up, raised their sticks and knives threateningly, and shouted. Stephen snapped a quick shot with his camera. Then everyone returned to dozing or to private conversations. There were too many extras to locate Hero, and he and Michio were nowhere in sight. Gran found some wooden steps that were part of an old set and sat down beside a fierce-looking fellow who appeared to be a bandit. It developed he had lived in New York City for several years and spoke excellent English. Stephen was growing restless. You suppose this is all we're going to see? I want to get a shot of a real samurai fight. In a movie I saw with Hiro, they sure whacked at each other, but nobody really got hit, and it was pretty funny. But it would make a good picture. Maybe you could climb around through those shacks behind us and get to a place where you could see, Sumiko suggested. Stephen looked in the direction she indicated. Good idea. You girls stay here, and I'll go see what I can find. Let's go, too, Celia said to Sumiko, and they started off on Stephen's heels. He looked back at them and shook his head, but Celia pretended not to see. Don't pay any attention, she said to Sumiko, and they went right on. It wasn't fair of Stephen to have all the fun and to shut them out. They had to climb over the logs of something that looked like an old stockade, squeeze between ripped canvas sides of scenery, run up steps that went nowhere, and jump down the other side. But the exploration was fun, and they could tell by the sounds that they were getting closer to the real action. Now one of the actors was shouting his lines furiously in Japanese, while someone else answered him angrily. Stephen had gone out of sight into a sort of cottage with a thatched roof, and the girls followed. 
There was the usual platform floor inside, though no tatami had been used here. Stephen was leaning out a rickety window, and by creeping up behind him, they could just make out what was happening. Outside, huge lamps had been set up to throw brilliant light on the scene. Glass reflectors, six feet or more across, stood in frames where they could catch the light and throw it back upon the scene to increase the brilliance. Several people sat about in canvas chairs, and a man with a megaphone, white riding pants, and leather putties, like an old-fashioned Hollywood director, stood up shouting orders at the actors. A script girl was at his side, pages of Japanese characters in her hand, while makeup people ran about, arranging a lock of hair here, the fold of a kimono there. The center of all this activity and attention was a handful of actors in full costume, Three delicate Japanese ladies in beautiful kimonos of magenta and peach and blue hovered above the fierce figure of a samurai in helmet and baggy pantaloons. At a signal, makeup people leapt back. The script girl fluttered her pages, the director gave an order, and the camera began to grind. The samurai drew his sword with a great shout of anger, while the ladies shrank behind him in a show of alarm. As the samurai advanced, the leader of the peasant farmers turned and shouted to the mob behind him. They all shouted back and waved their sticks and knives in the air. It was very interesting. And Celia leaned farther out the window beside Sumiko and Stephen, so she could see better. They were really close now, with the director and his assistants almost below them, though fortunately no one had looked around to notice their presence. Now the samurai stepped forward, forcing the peasant leader back at the point of his sword. And once more he shouted threateningly in Japanese. This time his words must have alarmed the peasant mob, for the whole great throng groaned and cringed backward, like a wheat field over which a strong wind had blown. In her excitement, Celia leaned still a little farther out, and suddenly the flimsy structure of the window frame gave way with a splintering crash, and all three were catapulted through space to the ground, landing practically behind the chair of the director. The man leapt up as though he had been prodded with a sword and turned around. The camera stopped grinding, the actors paused in what they were doing, the extras gaped, and it seemed to Celia, her face blazing, that there must have been several hundred people staring at them, for they had practically tumbled into the movie. Stephen was on his feet first, dusting himself off and regarding Celia in despair. Subiko had jumped up too and pulled Celia after her. By the stinging of one knee, Celia knew that she had bruised and skinned it, and her hand felt as though there might be a big splinter of rock in the skin, but she dismissed the sting of pain for other matters more important. The director came over, and although he didn't approve, his questions were courteous. Sumiko bowed repeatedly in her best Japanese manner and tried to apologize and answer him. What's he saying? Stephen asked. Tell him it was an accident. Tell him that my sister... But no one paid any attention, least of all Sumiko, who was trying to explain the unexplainable to the group that had gathered around to see what had happened. The samurai actor on the platform leapt gracefully to the earth, and came over to them, his sword still in his hand. He looked fiercer than ever close up, with his exaggerated makeup and eyebrows curling up at the outer corners in a black line. But he flashed the unexpected guests a smile and said politely, 
Please, what is happening? The director would have spoken, but Stephen, happy to find somebody who understood English, began explaining about his sister and how she had leaned too far out the window and how they had all fallen through. The samurai laughed out loud. Back on the platform, the pretty young ladies began to giggle, and the peasant leader smiled from ear to ear. Celia suspected that the director was not amused, but with true Japanese courtesy, he hid his irritation. The actor is Hiro's uncle, Sumiko whispered to Celia. He's explaining that it's really all his fault, as he invited us here. And after all, if nobody cared enough to get us to a place where we could see, we were not to blame. He's making it all sound like a joke, so maybe it'll be all right. Finally, one of the assistants ran off to get a couple of boxes and a board to lay across them so that a rude bench was set up in a place behind the director where they could all see very well indeed. The director bowed them to the bench, making them the guests of the studio in a very grand way. At once, everyone began bowing to everyone else, and Celia found that she and Stephen and Sumiko were all bowing as hard as the others. Bowing was something you picked up very quickly in Japan. The samurai bowed too, then winked at them in American fashion and went back to the platform. Everyone settled down and the scene was shot over again, without any dramatic interruptions or sound effects toward the end. Nevertheless, Celia discovered, taking time now to remove the splinter from her hand and examine her knee, movie-making could be a very slow process. Mostly, the extras sat around for minutes on end and did nothing at all. The actors on the platform rehearsed a scene in various ways, and then a portion of it was shot, only to be taken over again if the director wasn't satisfied. She hoped a good distance Grand wasn't worried and looking for them. Stephen had managed to get a couple of shots he wanted and was happy again. Celia couldn't blame Stephen for thinking her a dumb bunny. One of these days, she would just have to show him that she was smarter than he thought. At last, a break came in the movie work. The extras were dismissed and the crowd began to break up. Once more, Hero's uncle leapt from the platform and started back to them, still carrying his sword. With one hand, he unstrapped the elaborate helmet with its skirt that protruded over his shoulders and threw it off, revealing the samurai haircut he wore underneath. A long lock of hair had been caught at the top of his head like a short ponytail and skewered in place with a decorative pin. He handed the helmet to one of the makeup girls and came toward them, smiling. Hiro had apparently told him all about them, because he knew their names and spoke to each in turn. He seemed especially interested in Sumiko, whom he had not met before. You are Hiro's new cousin, just come from America, yes? Before war, I have lived a long time in California, so I speak American pretty good. He was about to sheathe his long sword, but Stephen held out his hands. Please, can I see that, sir? I've never had a look at a samurai sword before. Proudly, the actor held out his sword. This is a good one, very old, not imitation for play. Samurai take much care of sword because it means his life. In old days of Tokugawa reign, Japanese sword was a work of art. Celia, pressing close as she dared so that she could examine the sword too, saw what he meant. A handsomely decorated hilt was almost hidden by strands of silk and strong fiber, wound back and forth, crisscross, so that only small diamond-shaped portions of the sword hilt were left exposed. 
In these spaces were set tiny ornaments of gold and silver and bronze. The circular guard which divided the hilt from the blade was a miniature picture in open metalwork with bamboo leaf patterns and design. Often a samurai has three swords total, the actor said, and shown them another shorter sword which he wore with a hilt protruding behind his waist. A small one is called a tanto and is the samurai's best friend. It never leaves his side, though other swords must be removed before entering the house of a friend. With this sword, if honor so demands, he will take his own life. Celia shivered, remembering Hero's father. But of course, Hero's father had not been a samurai. All this belonged to the distant past. What about the third sword? Stephen asked. The actor shook his head regretfully. I cannot show you here. But you will find them still treasured in some families and in our museums. That is the Tachi. Very high, important samurai use this sword for special ceremonial occasions. This one is handed down through family and much treasured. Before the war, Gentaro Sato owned such a sword. Hiro's uncle held his own sword out by the blade for Stephen's inspection, and Celia and Sumiko looked closely too. The blade is no longer sharp, the actor said laughing. It's no good if I cut off pieces of other actors by mistake. A small golden object on the sword hilt caught Celia's eye, and she bent to examine it more carefully. Beautifully wrought in gold and bronze and fastened to the hilt was a tiny goose with its wings outspread flying. She touched it lightly with her finger. Did they always decorate swords like this? she asked. I saw this. Yes, of course. The actor was pleased. You have found the Manuki. See? He turned the sword over and showed her the other side of the hilt. Here is the flying goose on this side also, but different from the first one. Manuki means fist place, and such ornaments, all individual, never alike, were placed on hilts of all sorts to give the fighter good grip on his sword. Sure enough, the lovely gold and bronze goose on the other side was an individual in its own right. Its wings and legs were different, and so were the tiny feather markings. Celia remembered the little dragon pictures, which were also of carefully drawn individual beasts. She felt in her pocket and drew out the envelope that contained them. Do you think that these could be drawings of... of Manuki? she asked. The actor looked at the drawings carefully. His fiercely drawn eyebrows, which were not in keeping with his friendly manner, seemed to scowl. Yes, looks like Manuki picture. It's possible, I think. Celia glanced at Sumiko and put the tiny drawings back in the envelope. Stephen was paying no attention, for he had spotted Hiro and Michio in the dispersing mob of extras. The two were coming toward them. Michio in his student's clothes and visored cap, Hiro in the short trousers and dark coat of the peasant costume, a sweatband of blue cloth tied around his head. While Stephen told the boys what had happened, Celia put the envelope away in her pocket. As Hiro listened, he threw a disapproving look at Sumiko, and when Stephen finished, he spoke to her in Japanese. Sumiko shrugged and turned away from him indifferently. He's always telling me I don't know Japanese customs and courtesy. He thinks I should have kept you from coming so close. When they thanked Hiro's uncle and said goodbye, 
They crossed the now empty field looking for Gran. She was still sitting on the steps where they had left her, busily writing in her notebook. To Celia's relief, she looked up and smiled when she saw them coming toward her and didn't seem the least perturbed. Hello there. So you and Hero found each other. I thought I'd better stay in one spot until you came back. Besides, I had a lot of things to write down in my notebook. I hope you saw more of what was going on than I did. A little while ago there was some sort of big commotion in the front, but I couldn't find out what happened. The girls began to laugh, and it was Stephen who explained. Uh, Celia fell out a window, he said, which wasn't entirely correct, since Stephen had fallen through too. She and Sumiko had another thing in common, Celia thought. Sumiko had a cousin, and she had a brother who often disapproved and thought they weren't very bright. Somehow it didn't seem quite so hard to take when she knew she had company. Chapter 12 An Empty Scabbard Sumiko was still not permitted to run in and out of the Bronson house as much as Celia would have liked, but the doll lessons progressed, and afterwards... Sumiko always stayed a little longer than was necessary, but there was no invitation issued in return to either Celia or Stephen to visit the Sato's house. Grand said that was partly because so many Japanese lived under crowded circumstances. There were a lot of people living under the Sato roof. Japanese houses were not built for much visiting back and forth. A Japanese might invite you to his house for some ceremonial purpose, such as moon viewing in September or to see a beautiful garden, or rare treasure, but usually there had to be a special reason. Thus it came as a surprise when Sumiko ran over one morning and asked if Celia would come to see her grandfather. His daughter had taken the small children out, and only her mother and Hiro's mother were home just now. He wants you to come, Sumiko added, though I really don't know what's up. Celia was both pleased and a little dismayed. She was not at all sure she could recapture the way she had felt about Gentaro Sato that day on the hilltop. She had dropped back again into feeling a little awed and frightened by him. Still, she wouldn't miss going, and Sumiko would be right there to translate, so it might be possible this time to talk to him a little. Bring the dragons, Sumiko whispered when Celia was ready to go. Celia hesitated for a moment and then went to get them from the lacquer box. As they went through the living room, where Gran sat at her typewriter, she looked at them through her blue-rimmed glasses. Don't forget, I'm dying to have an interview with Gentaro Sato. If the right opportunity should offer, do mention my book to him, girls. They ran across the alley together, and Sumiko's mother met them at the gate of the house. She was a small woman, rather sadly pretty and not very old-looking. Sumiko said her grandfather insisted on all the grown women in his house wearing the kimono, so her mother had discarded western dress to please him. But not me, Sumiko whispered, patting her American plaid skirt affectionately. I'd feel silly in a kimono, and I'd never be able to walk with those little pigeon-toed steps the Japanese girls use. But if you go walking naturally in a kimono, it flaps open. The Sato house was far smaller than the one they had formerly owned, and it held a good many people. Subiko's mother, Hiro's mother, Mr. Sato's daughter, 
and her three small children, plus, of course, Hiro and Sumiko, all lived in downstairs rooms. Fortunately, in a Japanese house, the futon beds were folded away in cupboards in the daytime, and there was very little furniture. Only a section of the house had an upstairs, and this part was reserved for Shintaro Sato. Sumiko's mother had work to do in the kitchen, so it was Hiro's mother who went upstairs with them. She smiled delightedly at Celia and murmured a welcome in Japanese, but she was too clearly in awe of her father-in-law, for her smiles vanished when she ran upstairs ahead of them to see if Mr. Sato was ready to receive company. The usual slippers had been provided at the doorstep, so that Celia could take off her shoes and walk on the polished floors of the entryway and stairs. By now she had learned caution in climbing the steep, slippery stairs with their narrow steps that were best suited to small Japanese feet. She and Sumiko padded up, left their slippers at the head of the stairs, and stepped onto the springy, wheat-colored tatami. The sliding fusuma in this upstairs section had all been open to make one large airy room, open on three sides, looking out on the hillside and city. This was the artist's studio. Gentaro Sato came to greet them, and Celia saw he wore a fine kimono of charcoal gray, with a small crest in white on each sleeve. He bowed courteously, low, and Celia found herself bowing too and murmuring, Ohio gosemas, the polite good morning. Gran had taught her that. Mr. Sato gestured with a paper fan and led them away from the stairway to a place where cushions of purple silk had been set out for their coming. Sumiko and Celia curled up on two of the cushions while Mrs. Sato took one, a little farther back from the others. The artist knelt on a cushion before a large black lacquer tray on which stood painting things. Among them were a lovely blue jar containing many brushes with bamboo handles, some dishes of water, and tubes and saucers of paint. Beside him rose a tiered set of many drawers with small brass handles. Here he probably kept sheets of paper and various other equipments connected with his work. It was odd, Celia thought, but Mr. Sato did not look at all strange with his finely shaped bald head. In fact, it gave him a rather noble appearance, and one of great intelligence. While his face looked as though it might grow stern on occasion, his expression was most benevolent this morning, his smile kindly. Before he spoke to them, he gave Mrs. Sato a glance, and she bowed and hurried off for the tea that was always offered to a visitor. Then he opened a drawer beside him and took out two small fans, which he presented with ceremonious gestures to Celia and Sumiko. Sumiko looked impressed and pleased, and said quickly that her grandfather had painted these fans and did not give them to everyone. Celia opened hers and admired the branch of plum blossoms that had been painted across it. Sumiko's fan carried a wisteria spray. Thank him for me, Celia said. Tell him I think it's beautiful, and I'll keep it always. Sumiko translated, and Mr. Sato nodded pleasantly. In a moment, Hiro's mother was back, with a tray on which were set a flowered teapot, small cups without handles, and a plate of the prettiest cakes that Celia had ever seen. They were pink, green, white, and pale tan, and each one was shaped in the form of a four-petaled flower. 
The girls were supplied with cups of green tea and offered the cakes. Celia chose a green one and saw that it was made of two pieces of fragile crust as light as puffed wheat, with a green jam in between. The cake was almost too pretty to eat, but Sumiko had bitten into her pink one, so Celia followed her example. It was crunchy and went to nothing in her mouth, but she liked the sweet paste in the middle. The cake is made with soy flour, Sumiko explained, and the inside is a sort of jam made from soybeans. They call this kind of cake Monaco. Good, isn't it? Mr. Sato fanned himself with the somewhat larger-sized fan the gentleman used, and he beamed at them. Then he spoke to Sumiko in Japanese. He says you show talent in your drawing, Sumiko said. My grandfather wants to know if you're planning to become an artist. I, I don't really know, Celia faltered. I, I love to draw, but I'd like to do something with it when I grow up if I can. But it's too early to tell. There was a lengthy translation into Japanese, then Mr. Sato spoke, and again Sumiko translated for Celia. Grandfather says it's not too early to tell that you have a natural talent. If you work hard and give your life to it, you can become an artist, he says. Not sure what she wanted to give her life to, Celia was silent, and Mr. Sato spoke again. This time Sumiko looked at her curiously as she repeated his words in English. It's a funny thing, but he's hit on something I felt about you. Only I never knew how to say it. I can see what he means in Japanese, but it's hard to change into English. He thinks you're, well, tuned to the people and the world around you. Tuned? Celia repeated, puzzled. He means that you truly see what you look at. He thinks most people don't. He says you sense what people are like back of their words, behind their faces. He says there was a thread of deep understanding and appreciation between you and him that day he met you near the shrine. And that doesn't happen to him very often with many people. Because you have it, you should try to paint pictures so that others will experience what you feel. Celia grew pink with pleasure, though she wasn't altogether sure she understood what Gentaro Sato meant. Anyway, it was wonderful to know that this important and obviously noble person liked her. Now Mr. Sato turned to the tier of drawers beside him and took from one of them an almost square piece of stiff cardboard. A hair-thin band of gilt paper bound the edges all the way around. One side of the board was smooth and wrinkled with silver speckles. The other side was a white surface made for painting. He's going to paint a picture for you. Sumiko whispered in a tone of excitement. This is an honor. Celia held her breath as the artist selected a brush, moistened it, and dipped it into watercolor paint. He held the piece of cardboard at an angle against his knees as he knelt on the surface and touched the brush to the white surface. Watching, Celia could see the purple blossom of an iris come to life in only a few strokes of his brush. Gentaro Sato glanced at her rapt face and then nodded toward the Tokonoma, the alcove of honor. A blue vase held a single iris flower and a few green leaves. Celia remembered and knew what he meant. Your teacher, she said softly. He laughed with pleasure and made a gesture for her to watch. 
Carefully, he dipped a fresh brush into green paint to one side, turned it, and dipped a touch of yellow on the other side of the brush. Then he made a single swift stroke down the paper, from the sharp point of the leaf at the top to the broad base at the bottom, and a marvelous thing happened. The leaf began in dark green and then shaded off into yellow along one side, green on the other. He had shaded it and painted two colors in one, all in one stroke. He performed the same thing with several other leaves and the stalk of the flower, then drew a few lines of black here and there, and the picture was done, as lovely a painting of an iris as Celia had ever seen. Finally, he took a brush and black ink and stroked in the characters of his name. From a small black box he took a tiny seal, pressed it into the red paste the box contained, and stamped a seal below his name. What's that? Celia asked. It's the personal seal an artist uses. It's called a honko, Sumiko said. With a low bow, he presented the painting to Celia. This time, Celia didn't bother about translations. She spoke directly to the artist and put her heart into her words. Thank you, thank you so very much. I'll put this up in my room when I go home, and I'll be proud of it, and I'll always remember you. If he did not understand all the words, he understood what her eyes were saying and her tone, and his smile was friendly and warm. Again he spoke in Japanese, and this time Sumiko looked a little uncomfortable as she translated. He says he does not like all Americans. He says they are sometimes noisy and impolite and have no respect for his gods. But you have made him stop and think that maybe he's judged without knowing very many. He thinks your grandmother must be a fine lady. He's heard about the book she's writing. For just a moment, Celia thought of mentioning the fact that Gran wanted to meet him, but decided quickly this was not the time. Besides, Sumiko was continuing, sounding a little annoyed now. He's glad that you're my friend. He thinks you may be good for me. I wish I could talk to him, Celia said regretfully. I wish I could tell him what a good friend you are, Sumiko, and how much I like you. Sumiko shrugged. I can't tell him that, and he probably wouldn't believe you anyway. The old man spoke again gently, and as she listened, Sumiko's expression softened. He says that the beauties of nature have grown more dear to him than ever, for they contrast with the suffering Japan has known. He hopes that one day all nations will live at peace with the beauty about them, and not try to destroy it. Celia nodded solemnly. He was a wonderful old man. Sumiko was lucky to be his granddaughter. But now she knew they ought to go. She had been here long enough. Sumiko, however, stopped her. Wait, Celia. You haven't shown him the dragons yet. Remembering, Celia took the two little pictures from her pocket and held them out to the artist. Sumiko explained that Celia had found them in a box that came from the storeroom of the former Sato house. Did her grandfather know what they were? Gentaro Sato took the tiny pictures and stared at them for a long time. Watching him intently, Celia saw no change in his expression. But she had the quick instinct that the sight of these drawings disturbed him greatly. When he looked up, his eyes were dark and stern, and she knew that she was right. He spoke in a low voice, 
and Sumiko had to lean forward to catch his words. He says he drew these pictures many years ago. He copied them from something real in his possession. The old man seemed suddenly older, and though he hid his emotion, he looked so shaken that Celia wished she had not shown him the pictures. Maybe he'd like to keep them? She asked Sumiko. He accepted the drawings and thanked her gravely, but when Celia started to rise from her knees, he stopped her and spoke quickly to Hiro's mother. For a moment, Mrs. Sato looked so shocked that Celia thought she might refuse to do whatever she had been asked. But old habits won out, for Gentaro Sato was the head of the household. She rose smoothly from her knees, went to a cupboard at one end of the room. From it, she brought a handsome stand of black lacquer and placed it near the artist. It was made in the form of a wide base, with a support rising at each end, making a rack. Next, she reached into the cupboard again and brought out what looked like the long scabbard of a sword. It curved to fit a blade it had once held, and along its length, several crests had been etched in gold. Glancing at Mr. Sato's kimono, Celia saw that the leaf design on the crest of the sword sheath was the same as that on his kimono sleeves. Carrying the sheath reverently, Mrs. Sato knelt and placed it empty upon the lacquer stand. Gentaro Sato picked up a brush of India ink and drew something on a piece of paper before him. Celia saw that it was a sword, sheathless, with the naked blade exposed. Mrs. Sato murmured softly in a shocked voice, Ah, long time now he never draws sword, only flowers and birds. The artist paid no attention to her. With the handle of the brush, he tapped the hilt of the pictured sword and spoke to Sumiko in Japanese. This is the sword of our family that he's drawn, Sumiko said softly. These manuki, the little dragons, were set in gold and silver upon the hilt. Once, long ago, he drew these pictures of them for his own pleasure, and his eldest son, Hero's father, saved them. But the sword is gone. He told Hero's father it must never fall into enemy hands and be used against Japan. Sumiko paused in her translation for a remark of her own. As if we'd fight with Japanese swords. Then she went on. Before Hiro's father left Kyoto, Grandfather ordered him to destroy the sword. Now he is worried about having given that order. Suddenly Gentaro Sato startled them by rising to his feet and crossing the tatami to the veranda that faced out upon the alley. He moved the reed blinds aside and Celia saw he could look directly into the garden at the rear of the Bronson house. When he turned back to them, his expression was sad, but his tone was gentle when he spoke to Sumiko. He thanks you for bringing these pictures to him, she said. He'd like to keep them, but he's concerned because he feels that the spirit of his ancestor has appeared several times in order to tell him something. He doesn't know what the spirit wants. Now it hasn't come for some time, and he's troubled for fear he has failed it in some way that he cannot tell. Celia had an eerie feeling as she listened. She could almost see that figure in the garden again. Pale face, the hazy, drifting movement, 
and the sudden way in which it had disappeared. She stood up, not wanting to hear any more, and Sumiko rose with her. They bowed low to Mr. Sato before they left, and Celia thanked him again for his hospitality and for the painting. Sumiko came with her downstairs and waited while Celia put on her shoes. Well, that was sort of spooky, wasn't it? Sumiko said, eyes wide and frightened. Celia nodded. We've got to find some way to stop Stephen from having that Obake night he keeps talking about. Well, I'm afraid it just might happen. <laughs>